Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. Hello, and welcome to Blogging Theology again. Today I'm delighted to talk again to Dr. Peter Adamson. You're most welcome, sir. Hi. Nice to be back. Good to see you. Uh, Peter appeared on Blogging Theology five months ago when he discussed the question, what is Islamic philosophy? It proved to be a very popular video, gaining over 31,000 views, and I'll put a link to it in the description below. Peter is the host of the hugely popular History of Philosophy podcast, which appears as a book series with Oxford University Press, and I'll put a link to that as well. He teaches at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, where he is professor of late ancient and Arabic philosophy. Peter's research has mostly concerned philosophy in the Islamic world and its Greek sources. And he has published and edited numerous books and written dozens of research articles in this area. He says his hobbies include writing podcasts, watching Buster Keaton movies, and writing more podcasts, as you do. Um, today, Peter has kindly agreed to introduce us to a fascinating topic in Greek and Islamic philosophy. Is the world eternal? Is the world eternal? Uh, in his book, The Incoherence of the Philosophers, the famous Muslim theologian and philosopher Al-Ghazali attacks Ibn Sina's theories uh, about the eternity of the universe. So would you like to introduce us to the historical background and the philosophical issues, Peter? Sure. Uh, so let's just first of all clarify what we're talking about here. So we're talking about the eternity of the universe. Um, there's a couple of problems already here terminologically. Yeah. We have the words eternity and universe. So mm. we need to think about what those two things mean. Uh, neither of them is too puzzling, but it's still worth saying at the beginning. Eternity in medieval philosophy is an ambiguous word because sometimes it means timelessly eternal. Mm -hmm. God is often thought to be timeless. This may come up again, actually, when we're talking about how the debate unfolds. So something that's timelessly eternal at a minimum is something that's not changing ever. And it might be somehow beyond time, like maybe, for example, tensed language, like past, present and future verbs. Verb tenses wouldn't apply to it. Not exactly clear how to think about this, but in a way we can set all that aside because when we ask whether the universe is eternal, all we mean is, has it already existed forever? Right. There's a further issue about whether it will exist forever into the future. Mm -hmm. And although that's an interesting question, it's not really what they're debating. 
in this context. What they're asking about is whether the universe has already existed forever, and by forever I mean for an infinitely long time. Mm. Another way of putting this is that the universe doesn't have a beginning, so it doesn't have a first moment in time. Right. So that's the question right. as far as eternity goes. The question as far as the universe goes mm. is you might think, well, anything other than God would be the universe. So, for example, it could be that the universe was radically different, right? Like everything was made of cheese at some point or something, but that mm. would still count as an eternal universe if this cheese universe had turned into our universe, right? Yeah. Um, but actually what they're usually thinking in this context is that the universe has always existed pretty much in the way that it does now. Mm -hmm. And in a medieval context, they're thinking about the Aristotelian universe, which yeah. means it's a sphere. The out, at the outside of the sphere is the so-called sphere of fixed stars. So these are the stars that move together every night as you see them apparently moving over the Earth. Mm -hmm. The Earth's in the middle, and in between there are concentrically arranged further spheres on which are seated the planets. Right. Uh, but actually, most of what's up there is not the visible planets and the stars. It's these sort of crystalline, perfect, indestructible spheres, which are see-through. So they're transparent. You can't actually see them. The only reason you can see them is because there are these visible stars seated upon them, and those move, mm. right? So, so I sometimes compare this to um, looking at this, like you're, you're, sit you're sitting inside a bunch of nested goldfish bowls, and on in each goldfish bowl, there's a gem wow, wow. situated, which is rotating along with the goldfish bowl around the earth. Okay. And yeah. we could get more into the cosmology, but actually that's not going to matter very much for the debate. It's going to matter a little, I think, as we move along and look at the arguments. So the, so the question then to sum up is whether this spherical universe uh, has always existed or whether mm -hmm. it came into existence with a first moment in time. Um, maybe one other thing that's worth mentioning about the cosmology before we move on is the question of what's outside the external outer, so-called outermost sphere with the fixed stars on it. And the answer is nothing. And when I say nothing, I don't mean empty space or void vacuum. So we're not talking about, don't think about outer space. I mean, nothing, not even empty space. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's, not a, that's not an easy concept. I mean, what does nothing mean? Is nothing a thing or is it the absence of things? It, 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 um, it's ambiguous. In, in, I don't want to go, go down that rabbit hole, but uh, yeah. it is not a, an, an obvious concept philosophically. What do we mean by nothing? But but um, I don't. I say I don't want to pursue that line of thought, but just flag it as an issue. But I mean, really, all we need to bear in mind is that for Aristotelians, there's no empty space outside the universe. Right. So the limits of reality are the edge of the the edges of the uh, cosmic spheres. Okay. Um, and one thing that was pointed out by Ghazali, actually in the debate, is that this means that for an Aristotelian, there's a disanalogy between time and space because time for them goes on and on and on back into the past, mm -hmm. right? So there's no limit to time in the past. There's a limit to time sort of going forward, which is the present moment. And mm. we're keeping that we're pushing the limit on as we keep moving towards the future. But there's no limit in the past, right? Because the universe has always exist. Whereas there is a limit in space, mm. right? So there's an edge to everything, which is the outermost sphere. Interesting. Okay, so now if we move on to the, the actual debate as it unfolded in antiquity, mm. I think actually um, an interesting fact about 
the antique debate is that the main driving force behind it is something that's not actually that important in medieval philosophy, although it does come up. And this is uh, really an issue about exegesis and philosophical authority. So by late antiquity, once Neoplatonism kind of- Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Comes to be the dominant way of doing philosophy. We don't need to get into that except to say that there, like after Plato and Aristotle, there's a period where we have these various schools of philosophy that become dominant, especially Stoicism, but also Epicureanism and Skepticism. We call that Hellenistic philosophy. Then in late antiquity, Plato and Aristotle sort of edged them out as being the main sources. And the philosophers of late antiquity have a problem whenever Plato and Aristotle seem to disagree about something. So, for example, Aristotle criticizes Plato's theory of forms very yeah. heavily. Yeah. And so the Neoplatonists who would like to use both Aristotle and Plato as authoritative sources... Have a problem. Have to, they have a problem. They have to figure out what to do about this. Yeah. And they might say things like, oh, well, when Aristotle criticizes the theory of forms, what he what he's doing there is not criticizing the theory, but certain ways of understanding the theory. Mm. But there's some other way of understanding the theory according to which it's correct, mm. which That's is right. a completely bogus reading of Aristotle, <laughs> but it's, it's the kind of thing they would say. Yeah. And one of the main points of tension or apparent tension, points of tension between Plato and Aristotle is our question whether the universe is eternal. Right. Because in a dialogue which people don't read that much anymore in like universities, but which was absolutely one of the most important dialogues in late antiquity and the Middle Ages, and the Middle Ages is certainly the most important dialogue for Plato in terms of its influence. So this is called the Timaeus. Yeah. And it's an account of a divine craftsman called a demiurge, demiurge demiurgos in Greek. It's a long time to learn to pronounce that word, but it's demiurge. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's demiurgos in Greek. You can uh, do, do whatever you want with that. I usually say demiurge in English. Yeah, yeah. So the, so the demiurge um, is a god that creates the physical cosmos. Yes. No, not to be identified with the god understood in the Western uh not the god of Islam, the god of Christianity, the god of Judaism. This this is some other kind of configuration of the deity. It's not identified simply with our understanding of God. Uh, that's right, for sure. Although one reason why the Timaeus is so popular in the Middle Ages is that it seems to be one of the pagan philosophical works that comes closest to yeah. affirming Indeed. creationist, you know, religious assumptions. Yeah. So that so at least you've got this creator God, right? Yeah. Um. 
but one thing that it looks like maybe different between the Timaeus God and the Abrahamic God is that this God seems to be creating the universe out of some pre-existing stuff. Mm -hmm. Again, very difficult to interpret what Aris what uh, Plato is talking about that there, but Aristotle implies that Plato was just talking about creating the universe from pre-existing matter. So you have mm -hmm. some unformed matter and then the demiurge comes along and imposes form on it. Mm -hmm. Um, notice, by the way, that takes us back to the question of what do we mean by talking about the universe? Mm, yes. Because yes, according to that story, so as a kind of like superficial, at least, reading of the Timaeus might give you the idea that there's some unformed matter, which is eternal. And it's just kind of sitting there waiting for the Demiurge to do something with it. And then the Demiurge comes along and makes it into a universe. Mm. You might also think the fact that he's called a craftsman, a Demiurgos, mm. Because that that Greek word implies something like a carpenter, right? So the idea of making it out of making the universe out of pre-existing matter, the way a carpenter would make a table out of wood, is kind of maybe yeah, <laughs> what Plato yeah. is trying to get at. Yeah, yeah. In any case, there's a passage in the Timaeus where Plato explicitly raises the question, or has his main character Timaeus explicitly raise the question, whether the universe has a beginning or not mm. so he says is it does it have a beginning or did it come to be and the greek words here are important so he says does it have a beginning an arche okay yes which is a word that lives on in english and words like architect right that's the yeah. chief architect right yes. um so techne is craft and yes. arche is chief or beginning or principle yes and then he, when he says, has it come to be, he uses the word gegonen. So that just means has come to be. Yeah. You'll see in a second why I'm sort of dwelling on the Greek words. So, so it looks like, and, and then Timaeus in the, in the dialogue says, it has come to be. So yeah. it looks like he's explicitly affirming that the universe came to be with the first moment in time, right. which would be okay, except that Aristotle yeah, is yeah. even more explicit yeah. that the universe is eternal. Yeah, yes. And he even uses the eternal motions of the heavens in his proof for God's existence. Mm, mm. So again, that's kind of a long story, but the basic idea is that uh, there, it's impossible that a body be the generating power that gives rise to an infinite motion. So if the heavens have already been moving infinitely for an eternal period of time, that must mean that they have an incorporeal cause, and that would be God. So on the face of it, it looks like you've got this clash between Plato on the one hand, Aristotle on the other. Plato yeah. thinks the universe is not eternal. Aristotle thinks it is. And these are our two main authorities. So we don't really want them to dis disagree. So that's like a, a central problem that drives the eternity debate in antiquity. Mm, gosh, yeah. So moving on to um, the Islamic uh, philosophers, um, Ibn Sina, of course. Um, he's known uh, in the West as... Uh, Avin's uh, Avicenna, if I pronounce that correct, uh, but his Arabic name uh, is Ibn Sina, and uh, he, he was the author of a numerous work, hugely influential philosopher uh, and controversial for many people. And uh, this is the work, uh, the Metaphysics of Healing, uh, which is perhaps relevant to uh, your discussion. But Al Ghazali, in his uh, volume, The Incoherence of the Philosophers, uh, offers a sustained, relentless, and ruthless critique of. Um, his views, Ibn Sina's uh, views, which I'll 
uh, obviously invite you perhaps to elucidate the what is the argument about why is Al Ghazali so critical of Ibn Sina and and so on. And then I have a a, a, a question about this whole issue uh, um, toward later on perhaps. Right. Okay. So actually, let's let's first fill in just a bit of the story between mm. where we just left off, Plato and Aristotle, and these guys, because the the, the the arguments against the eternity of the world that are circulating in the Islamic world actually come to some extent from the late ancient context. Mm. So what happens there is that most of the Neoplatonists want to say that the universe is eternal. So even though they're Platonists, they agree with Aristotle. Right. So they need to offer a reading of Plato according to which he also thinks the universe is eternal. And this is actually why I mentioned the Greek words. So when so there's a Platonist named Proclus who says, well, when the Timaeus says that the universe has an arche, it doesn't mean that the universe has a temporal beginning. It means that it has a principle or a cause, like a first okay. principle. Because as I said, arche can mean that too. And when it says that the universe has come to be, gegonin, what it means is that the universe is in kind of flux, is changing all the time, as mm. opposed to the divine source, which is unchanging. And then a late ancient Neoplatonist, who was also a Christian named John Philoponus, attacked this reading of the Timaeus, said, no, 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 the Timaeus is to be taken kind of literally or at its, you know, at the first blush reading uh, as saying that the universe does begin and furthermore, there's all kinds of arguments we can give to show that the universe ha must have had a first moment in time. Mm. And he has arguments to show that the idea of past eternity is impossible. And we can maybe get into that. But anyway, his arguments against the eternity of the universe are then transmitted into Arabic. And they were already known before Ibn Sina and Al-Ghazali. So actually, when Al-Ghazali is attacking Ibn Sina, he's able to draw on some of the same kinds of arguments that had been given against the eternity of the universe already in antiquity by Philoponus and then by some Arabic speaking philosophers before Ibn Sina. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, I mean, people often suggest that a kind of definitive feature of philosophy in the Islamic world is that all the philosophers believe that the universe is eternal and all the theologians think it isn't. So we have mm -hmm. this kind of paradigmatic debate between Ibn Sina and Al-Ghazali, but mm. they kind of extrapolate from that to think, well, all of the philosophers think the universe is eternal. All the theologians think it's not eternal. That's not true, but is actually, it? Yeah. There are plenty well, of examples like Farabi and others who thought the universe was uh, at a beginning in time, that it wasn't eternal. Well, actually, no, Farabi does, does seem to, I mean, there's a little bit of unclarity about this, but um, it seems that Farabi thought the universe was eternal. Oh, right. And Ibn Sina did. And Ibn Rushd did, right. also known as Averroes, and yeah. they're really famous. Yeah, yeah. These are the three most famous Aristotelians um, in the in the uh, in the universe in the, in the Islamic yeah. world. Um, <laughs> the Islamic world, not to be confused with the universe. Mm. So, because they're famous, it, there's a kind of easy assumption, which is that all of the so-called philosopher, all of this is what we talked about last time, right? So. There's this contrast between philosopher and kalam. You have these yeah. Greek-inspired philosophers and these Quranic-inspired theologians. Mm -hmm. And people assume that all of the philosophers, the philosopher, are adherents of the eternity of the universe. But actually, that's not true. So the first philosopher who's making significant use of Greek works is Al-Kindi. He oh, argues yeah. explicitly against the eternity of the universe using arguments from Philoponus. A Jewish philosopher at the same time, Saadi Agan, does exactly the same thing. 
mm. around the same time you have Abu Bakr al-Razi, who's uh, not an Aristotelian or Platon, but he's a Platonist in a way, and he's very influenced by Galen because um, he's a doctor. He also rejects the eternity of the universe. And you can kind of go on from there and talk about other philosophers like Miskaway, who's uh, a contemporary of Encina. So actually, I don't think that it's true that even among the philosophers, there was a kind of orthodoxy about this. But you say that, I mean, Al-Ghazali in his book, The Incoherence of the Philosophers, which we'll come to in a second, appears to suggest that Greek philosophers did believe in the eternity. He seems to have this generalized view that Greek philosophers did believe in the eternity of the universe. And you're saying, actually, that's wrong. Al-Ghazali basically, as a matter of fact, just got it wrong. In fact, there were some prominent ones who did, but most didn't. Yeah. Right? yeah and in fact, the, I mean, when he uses the word philosopher or, or the word philosophy, falsafa, mm -hmm. actually, I mean, that's the, a little bit misleading because what he really means is just in Sina. So he right. says, the philosophers say, and then he, oh, what he's always doing there is either giving a view of Ibn Sina's or an argument that you could give in on behalf of Ibn Sina. Right. But he's often saying things that some philosophers would have strongly disagreed with. In particular, like Akindi would have strongly disagreed that the universe yeah, is. Mm -hmm. So, so actually, this is a um, kind of symptom of something you mentioned before, which is just the powerful influence of Imsina. So once he comes along, he kind of pushes everyone else out and makes it hard to see that there's a difference between being a philosopher, a philosopher, and being an Avicennan, a mm. follower of Imsina. But actually, it's, I mean, it's a historical matter. It's important to distinguish those two things. Right. But in any case, I mean, for us, I guess, in this conversation, the more important issue is, given that it wasn't kind of automatic that Ibn Sina would have, would endorse the eternity of the universe. Mm. Why did he? Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yes. And one obvious answer, which might apply to Al-Farabi and Ibn Rushd would be, well, they know that Aristotle believed in the eternity of the universe and they're Aristotelians. Like they're more committed to Aristotle's authority than maybe some of the other Arabic speaking philosophers were. And so they kind of feel like they have to go along with him on this. Mm. But actually, I don't think that's a very good explanation in the case of Ibn Sina. It would be a good explanation in the case of Ibn Rushd because mm. he's like a dyed-in-the-wool, hardcore <laughs> Aristotelian. But Ibn, Ibn Sina is like very proud of the fact that he always reconsiders every issue, yeah. thinks about whether he agrees with Aristotle. He's often critical of Aristotle. He's not usually rude about Aristotle, but he definitely disagrees with him mm. on a number of points. And if he hadn't been philosophically convinced that the universe is eternal, he wouldn't have said it was just to go along with Aristotle. I think that's clear. Yeah, yeah. So to understand why he thinks the universe is eternal, we need to say something about his views on God. And I think we might have touched on this in the previous conversation, but just as a quick reminder, he proves that God exists by showing that there's a necessary existent. Oh, God. Right? So the idea is everything we see is contingent. It, yeah, it yeah. can't be that contingent things come to be without having a necessary cause. So there's this necessary cause. There's only one such necessary cause. That's God. That's how yeah. he kind of gets his philosophical yeah. theology going. And when he says that God is necessary, he wants to say not just that God necessarily exists, which everyone would agree with in this culture. Right? So God doesn't just happen to exist, right? God has to exist. Yeah. Um, it, but furthermore, Ibn Sina wants to say that everything about God is necessary. 
so here's wow. a reason why you might think that if you're Ibn Sina or a reason why he, he did think this. Um, suppose that there's something about God that's not necessary. So for example, suppose that he may create the universe, but may not like it's sort mm -hmm. of up to him to decide. <laughs> or indeed suppose that the universe isn't eternal so that for a while he wasn't creating the universe and then suddenly he is mm. right so like on tuesday he's not creating the universe but on wednesday he is so that would mean that there's something contingent about god there's something about god that may or may not be the case and it turns out not to be the case at first and then to be the case later he's at front first he's not a creator then he is a creator so now ibn Sina would say well let's explain why this happens it can't be due to God himself or God's nature or essence, because if it were true to God's nature, then of course it would follow automatically from his nature. So it would always be true of him and it would necessarily be true of him. Right. Mm -hmm. Because so if you imagine that God creates the universe essentially or necessarily from his nature, that would be like water being wet. Right. So water can't not be wet. It's always wet. Similarly, mm -hmm. if God's essentially, guaranteed to create the universe then he would always be creating it of course this has the implication that god has no freedom no free will so to speak he is compelled is a necessity he's necessitated to act uh, and has that's no what, that's exactly yeah you're kind of skipping ahead to kazali's objection there yes yeah, yeah. yeah, that's but that's right that's exactly kazali's worry mm. um so and and i mean what kazali is going to say is well god does it by free will but mm. what Messina would say is well look Either God generates the universe through himself, in which case he'd have to do it essentially the way that water is wet, hmm. or there would have to be some other factor involved. Some other cause would come along and make God create the universe. Like, for example, I mean, that makes it sound very much a matter of compulsion, but it could also be something like circumstances change and it becomes better for the universe to exist than not to exist, right? But whatever it is that happens that makes God generate the universe, it would be some kind of cause that's being exerted on God. And then God would have a cause which we rule out. Indeed, indeed. So what you just said is exactly Ghazali's response to that. But bef before we maybe get into that and talk about the response, I think it's worth kind of dwelling on the internal logic of what Ibn Sina is saying. So Ibn Sina, what Ibn Sina is saying is, God is necessary. And what that means is that everything about God is necessary, not just that God exists and that he's powerful mm -hmm. and knowing and good and all the things that we want to ascribe to God. But God cannot take actions that are non-necessary. Right. Because if he did, then there'd have to be some causal influence being brought to bear on him, which explains why he's doing it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because he might not have done it. Right. So it's it's like, well, it's, yeah. it's contingent. Right. Sometimes they compare this to... Um, to a set of scales that need to be preponderated to do one thing rather than another. So whatever it is that kind of comes along and puts its thumb on the scale to make mm. God create, that would be a cause that's exerting some kind of influence over God. And that's mm. what he wants to rule out. And I mean, actually that's, that's very, very intuitive, right? Yes. And very logical. I, I mean, I, I, I would I'll raise this question uh, later on, but I, I do want to just observe here that both of these individuals, Ibn Sina al-Ghazali, 
are self-identified as Muslims, and and th this is mm -hmm. they're not identified, I think, primarily as philosophers or but as Muslims. So I just raise that point because it links into a question I'm going to ask about the uh, the Quran basically and what it says, which may or may not be uh, referred to very much in these conversations anyway. But um, anyway, I just wanted to point out we are talking about an, uh, the interlocutors here are both Muslims; they're not just secular hellenistic philosophers yeah that's um, right and although but you're right that ibn sina when he gives this whole argument he he might like throw in a quotation from the quran at the end and say something mm -hmm. like oh that's why it says that god is powerful in the quran right but but it, but the whole thing that, that what's generating it is a philosophical argument yeah definitely um okay so maybe now we can get to ghazali's response which is very complicated but at the core of it is definitely the idea you mentioned before. So what Ghazali wants to do is to say that God is capable of doing something contingent. And that is important to him because he wants God to have free will. Mm. And to him, free will means being able to choose between alternatives that are genuinely open. Mm. Actually, Ibn Sina has anticipated this objection. So he says okay. that um, he says that God is free, or is at least willing. But what he then does is he interprets that to mean that there's nothing external compelling God to act. So he says, well, we can say that God is freely willing to generate the universe or emanate the universe because nothing's making him do it. Mm. <laughs> so he's free in the sense of being free from compulsion. Because Ali thinks that that's not good enough and that freedom needs to mean literally choosing between uh, genuinely open alternatives. And he says, well, actually, in a way, the Aristotelians should be committed to this, too, because let's consider, again, the size of the universe. Mm. So the universe is however big it is, right? As we saw, it has these limits. There's nothing outside it. Well, surely it could be like one inch bigger mm. or one inch smaller. Mm. So it looks like God is making choices between genuine alternatives there. Right. And he could have made it bigger, he could have made it smaller, but he chooses to make it that size, right? Actually, the, the book you showed us, The Incoherence of the Philosophers. Yeah, there we go. That's a uh, translation, uh, Michael uh, Mamura, um, recommended uh, by most people. It's a standard text. It's actually got the parallel Arabic and in English. Yeah. Uh, translation uh, is very readable and contains all these arguments, relentless arguments um, that Al-Ghazali deploys uh, in attacking Ibn Sina. Um, but he doesn't seem to quote the Quran very much. We'll come back to this and even mention Ibn Sina by name. I, I don't know if I, maybe I missed that, but uh, I couldn't see Ibn Sina mentioned by name uh, in the text. Yeah, but I think he mentions he, he mentions him eventually when he accuses him of heresy. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I accuses him of being an apostate, actually. Of oh, really? Gosh, leaving yeah. Islam, yeah, by by upholding these um, doctrines. But right. I, what I was going to mention is that Ibn Rushd, the Aristotelian commentator I mentioned before, he wrote a work called The Incoherence of the Incoherence. Yes, yes. Well, and in yeah. that, he says, oh, it's actually not true that the universe could be an inch bigger because the universe is like perfectly designed in this providential way so that all the heavens move in exactly the right way. And if, if anything were even slightly different, everything would kind of go go berserk so like the heavenly influence on the lower world where we live would be disrupted if the universe was even slightly different mm -hmm. um, another nice argument that Ghazali gives is if the universe is going around like this 
couldn't it also have gone around like this? So uh -huh. backwards, or if yeah. the universe is like this, couldn't it be like that? Yes. And Ibn Rush says these things are all meaningless because like up is just like wherever the North Pole is. So oh. if the North Pole were over here, that would be up, right? So you, so you get these nice kind of space-time analogies yeah, that, are, yeah. that are raised mm -hmm. in the work. Mm -hmm. But I mean, what he's really after is he, he, he explicitly wants to say that God can choose between two genuinely open alternatives. That's his point. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he even gives a nice example which anticipates something we associate with Latin medieval philosophy, the so-called Buridan's ass case, where a donkey is between two bales of hay yes. and has to choose between them. So his so Ghazali gives the example of um, someone offers you two dates, like mm -hmm. not not a date, like a date to go out to dinner in a movie, but a, yeah. a little fruit, dried fruit, right? Yes. And he says, well, if someone offers you two dates and they look exactly the same, Mm. and you would like one and he and the person says you can only take one then you wouldn't just kind of sit there looking at them forever with a good <laughs> reason to take one rather than another you just pick one mm. and so what so Ghazali it brings this up because he thinks that one of the arguments against the eternity of the universe uh, would be that there's no rational basis on which God could choose the first moment of the universe and it's sort of, again, the same kind of thought, like, well, there has to be some cause or reason that's mm -hmm. bringing the God to create now rather than earlier. Mm -hmm. And um, Ghazali's response to that is, well, if you want to create a universe, you have to do it at a specific time. So God just chooses a time. And that's rational, just as it would be rational to choose one of the two dates to eat. Wow, very interesting. What, what other arguments does uh, Al-Ghazali deploy to refute the idea of the eternity of the universe? Yeah, so some of the arguments involve infinity in interesting ways. Ah, yes. So, the, and this had always been one of the biggest problems with the thesis of the eternity of the universe. That this is just this is a subject that is of great interest in in contemporary philosophy. You know what is infinity and and different kinds of infinity. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but when you actually hear the arguments, there are different kinds of infinity. Not all infinities are the same, and so it's become mm -hmm. a fascinating uh, discourse in contemporary uh, uh, philosophy about the nature of that. But um, I've always found it a baffling concept, uh, the idea of infinity. But it, yeah. it is quite elusive, I think, uh, to, to to many people. Um, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, that, you're right. I mean, that is, in fact, w one of the things that I'm really fascinated by with the whole eternity debate is mm. that it raises these, I mean, you might not care about the eternity of the universe, no. as it, especially because, you know, modern physics, you might think has already I kind of given us the yeah. answer or something like the answer. So why are we interested in this? And I think actually the main reason it's interesting is that it it bears on a whole bunch of other issues like the nature of free will, so, for example, that question, is an agent free because nothing is compelling the agent to act, which is even seen as a view of freedom, or is an agent free because the agent is choosing between genuinely open possibilities, which is Ghazali's view of freedom? That is something that philosophers still debate. And this is one of the earliest clear contrasts between those two conceptions of freedom. Mm -hmm. Or here, um, you have people thinking about like the nature of infinity and what kinds of infinity are possible and what kinds of infinity aren't possible. Yes. So, and one of the problems with the um, thesis that the universe is eternal had always been that 
it seems hard to believe that the universe has already existed for an infinite period of time because one way of putting this would be well if the universe has already had existed eternally then an infinite amount of time must already have elapsed yes but you can't finish yes. an infinite anything right yeah. so how did we get to the end of this infinity to get to the present moment yeah right? And what the Aristotelians would say is, well, that's kind of the wrong way of thinking about it. So don't think about it as an infinite past that's already finished elapsing. Think of it more like start from the present movement moment and go back. And now I'm willing to say, well, any number you, you mentioned to me, I'm willing to say that the universe has already existed for that number of years. So right. you say a billion years, I say, yes, it's already existed for a billion years, a trillion years. Sure. 10 trillion. Sure. Right. Mm. You just you can go as high as you want. And so the the infinity involved is more like the infinity of the finite numbers, which is not absurd. Mm -hmm. um, but we really get start getting into more like technical and interesting issues about infinity with another argument that Ghazali gives. And here, um, this is why I mentioned before the thing about the nested spheres. So remember, I said that there are some spheres that are closer to Earth that have planets on them. Yes. And then there's the outermost sphere with the fixed stars is going around once a day, right? And the earth is staying still in the middle. That's the cosmology. Mm. So these, these planets or planetary spheres are rotating at different speeds. So let's just say for the sake of argument that like the sphere of Mars moves twice as fast as the sphere of Jupiter or, and what I mean by that is just that it goes, it, it rotates yeah. around the earth twice yeah. every time Jupiter does yeah. it once. Yeah. Okay. That, that obviously that's not the right math <laughs> astronomers is I know that Mars doesn't go around the earth yeah. twice as fast as Jupiter, but the point is that it's, it's different. The, their speeds of rotation around apparent rotation around the earth are different. Mm -hmm. So now Ghazali says, okay, so let's say the universe has existed for an infinity of time. Mm -hmm. Well, that means that Mars has gone around the earth an infinite number of times. And so has Jupiter, but since Mars is moving, twice as fast or has is rotating around us twice as often the sphere of mars has performed an infinite number of circuits around the earth that's twice as large as the infinite number of circuits that jupiter has performed mm -hmm. so we've got twice infinity and once infinity so mm -hmm. two infinities one of which is double the other and then Hazali says that's absurd yes yes because infinity is infinity you can't double infinity mm -hmm. Um, now, on modern mathematical intuitions, that's not the case anymore. Exactly. But you can see that like something's interesting is happening there where someone's like thinking about whether you can do things like multiplying infinity by a finite number, in this yes. case, two. So yes. that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, another argument he gives is that um, the philosophers are trying to get out of the, the commitment to what they think of as an actual infinity, like that thing about an act, an infinity of time actually elapsing so we can get to the present moment. And they get around that by saying, well, don't think about it that way. Think about going backwards. Don't think about going forwards from an infinitely remote time. Think about going backwards to just ever higher finite numbers of elapsed years in the past. So Ghazali says, well, there's something else they're committed to, which will land them, will land them with it actually infinite number of things that exist right now which is the immortality of the human soul so this is kind of a 
from left field, right? Yes, but yes. he says rightly that the philosophers, i.e. Ibn Sina, are committed to the immortality of the soul. So that means that every time someone dies, their soul survives. Mm -hmm. So let's think about how many humans there have already been. Well, the universe, as we've said, for an Aristotelian is always the same. And the species of animals and plants are all the same. The, spe the human species has always existed mm -hmm. in the universe. So that means that the number of humans who have already lived and died is infinitely large. Gosh. And that means that there's an infinity of souls hanging around somehow now. Wow. So, so that gives you an actual infinity, which is something that the Aristotelians should want to rule out. That's a brilliant argument, actually. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I, I've got to bring this in now because um, in reading Al-Ghazali's arguments in the incoherence of uh, the philosophers, there it is again, do recommend it. It's actually a fascinating read. Al-Ghazali, look, never seen- a cut every time someone buys one of the books. You, <laughs> you, should, you should try to demand, you know, 5% of the profits. Well, yeah, maybe I, I, I should. I'm interested to see if anyone does, but I hope they do, because it's, it's worth having in one's library. But Al-Ghazali never seems to uh, quote from the Quran as an authority to settle matters with his Muslim interlocutors like Ibn Sina. But he relies on purely rational arguments to refute them. My question is, why doesn't Al-Ghazali simply quote the Quran to settle his dispute with Ibn Sina? For example, the, and this is to do with the eternity of the universe particularly, um, mm -hmm. God says in the Quran, God has created the heavens and the earth to manifest the truth. That's the Quran 45.22. And he also says, God says, we did not create heaven and earth and everything between them for no to no purpose. There is that is the opinion of those who disbelieve. That is thirty eight twenty seven. So, but by, I think it seems pretty clear that the God did create the universe. It wasn't eternal. And here we have two people identify as Muslims whose ultimate authority is God and His Word. I'm just wondering why they didn't appeal to authority. It's not a fallacious argument if the authority is God, surely, because He's mm -hmm. omniscient. Um, to settle this dispute. So wh wh why didn't they just short circuit all this and go straight to God himself for the answer? Yeah, right. That's a good question. I think there's a couple of reasons. So one reason has to do with the project of the incoherence of the philosophers, Ghazali's work. So, the, I mean, the the words in Arabic of the, in the title are Tahafat al-Falasifa. Tahafat means, I mean, that's what's being translated here as incoherence, but it means something more like stumbling right. or places where the philosophers tried to maybe go forward too quickly and lost their way. That's what Tahafat means. So that is always already a clue to what he's trying to do in the work in general, which is to show that their arguments don't work kind of for internal reasons, yep. right? So actually, although he, he could quote the Quran. And of course, in some sense, you're right that his motive is because he thinks the Quran is inconsistent with the eternity of the universe. Right. It, actually, that's just not the point. The point is that these arguments actually don't work in and of themselves. Right. So it's an internal critique. That's the point of the book. Mm -hmm. And so quoting the Quran would be maybe kind of something you might do to kind of set the context of the debate, but it wouldn't have to be, it wouldn't be part of the debate because the debate is about whether Ibn Sina's arguments work Mm. I mean, another way of thinking about that would be suppose that you can mount a philosophical argument for a thesis, which is inconsistent with the Quran, and the argument works. 
Right. It, on its own terms, rather. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. or it's like a proof. So, I mean, imagine it's like a mathematical proof, right? So, for example, suppose the Quran said that this, the diagonal of a square is commensurable with the sides. Yes, which it doesn't, would, but yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not, right? So, yeah. I mean, of course it doesn't say that, but imagine that it did. Would right. that be bad news for the Quran or would it be bad news for geometry? Right, yeah, okay. Well, so here you might think, well, actually, if philosophy or reason proves that the universe is not eternal and the Quran mm. says that it is, is that bad for Islam or is it bad for reason or what like, and, and so I think one, one thing that's going on is the Ghazali as a rational theologian doesn't want to accept that reason or rational proofs might be inconsistent with the Quran right. because he, he wants to have reason and the Quran. So that's one reason he's arguing on purely rational grounds is mm. that he wants to, in a way, um, avoid ceding the ground of rational argument to the philosophers by by which he means it in Sina. So that's one reason. Another reason though is that actually if if the, the lines you quoted from the Quran just now, Ibn Sina would say, what are you talking about? I think that's true. God okay. creates the universe. He creates it eternally. That's no, what creation okay. is. So in fact, he's Ibn Sina says the theologians have this idea that creation means something used to not exist and then it started existing and he says basically he doesn't put it this way but he basically says that's that's a childish way of understanding what creation means creation means being a cause for something's existence mm. which means being a cause for its existence whatever it exists right i.e <clears throat> making it exist and maintaining it in existence so it's not like god creates and then it's like okay i'm done now i can go on vacation God creates the universe all the time, constantly, in every right. moment. And given that, and actually the theologians would agree with that, that the universe is permanently dependent on God. So what Ibn Sina would say is, well, given that we agree that the universe depends causally on God at every moment when it exists, why are you additionally insisting that it had to start? Because we agree that what God does is he creates the universe by maintaining its existence whenever it exists. Whether it has existed for an infinity of time or not is kind of irrelevant to whether God creates the universe, because God's mm. creating the universe all the time, causing I, I, it to exist. I mean, I, I'm in a position to um, argue for the Quran in this sense, but it just seems that the Quran it doesn't doesn't actually teach or indicate the eternity of the universe. It, it, it says it's created. So I suppose in theory, Ibn Sina could be right, because he's arguing from contingency. The universe is contingent; doesn't necessarily happen to be finite i guess mm -hmm. i can see that ontologically dependent yeah but the quran doesn't teach the eternity of the universe aristotle taught the eternity of the universe so he seems to be getting his con concept from aristotle rather than the quran uh, the quran doesn't naturally it seems to me teach that aristotle does so he's not really coming from the quran therefore the critique is he's not being islamically correct in his understanding of the universe in that sense right so what i think what ibn sina would say at least is that the Quran teaches the radical dependence of the universe on God. Yeah. That's not disputed. And no. he thinks, and he's got that in his system, right? He has the universe being radically dependent on God eternally. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess he would also, by the way, say that the, the Quran teaches some things about God that are inconsistent with the idea that the universe is not eternal. For example, that God is perfectly wise. So if God is perfectly wise, why is he kind of hanging around for an infinity of time and then only sort of randomly, arbitrarily deciding to create the universe on Wednesday, right? Mm. So 
So this or and in and the other the other thing is the argument I gave before. So he he would say the Quran teaches the unchallengeable supremacy of God as a first cause who has no cause, and mm -hmm. he says, well, if there if God isn't creating the universe eternally, then he's creating it with a first moment of time, which means there's some cause that has been brought to bear on him that makes him do that, as we mm -hmm. said before. So actually, I, I guess he would say, I mean, he he's not really in the business of Quranic commentary. That's no. Not, he very occasionally quotes the Quran, yeah. very, very occasionally, and usually in a pretty tendentious fashion. Really? So I, I don't know. We sh I don't, I don't want to suggest that he's got a lot at stake in how to interpret the Quran. Right. But if you pushed him on this, he would say he would certainly say that he's still being a good Muslim, mm -hmm. and he would say, "Well, if you want to know what the Quran means, because we all agree it needs to be interpreted, then the best way to resolve debates about what it means." would be to do some philosophy and find out what is actually true. I see. I see. And there's something, by the way, that's even more explicitly said by Ibn Rushd later on. So Ibn Rushd, um, right. the commentator I've mentioned a few times, he actually wrote a work saying that the best interpreters of the Quran are the philosophers because they can check any interpretation against demonstration mm -hmm. and demonstrations can't be false. So, for example, if you can demonstrate the universe is not eternal, that, or sorry, if you can demonstrate that it is eternal, then you can't give any reading of the Quran that involves the Quran's claiming that the universe is not eternal. Well, you say Ibn Sina would have viewed himself as a good Muslim, but uh, Al-Ghazali clearly didn't view him as a good Muslim or Muslim at all, it seems. Uh, you, you mentioned briefly earlier on that Al-Ghazali um, takfeared him, uh, to use the Islamic expression, uh, declared him to be a non-Muslim. And, mm -hmm. and that's just not a, a theoretical judgment that has legal real world existential consequences now of course ibn sina had died long before al-ghazali so ibn sina was in no risk of any action taken against him of course but he did declare him to be a non-muslim and why did he declare him to be a non-muslim it's a very radical radical it's a very very serious thing to do yeah and it's, it's actually not just serious it's also kind of unprecedented because, really? um, yeah, there's so someone who's done some good work on this is Frank Greffel, who's at Yale University. And he wrote a book called in German uh, about apostasy in Islam, where he argues that because this moment where Ghazali accuses Ibn, Ibn Sina of being an apostate is kind of a like a step that hadn't been taken before in Gosh. Islamic culture. Um, and in fact, in general, I think people have this sort of assumption about medieval philosophy in general and Islamic medieval philosophy in particular, that there must have been like a lot of political or social or legal pressure on philosophers to conform to certain views and that they would get killed if they stepped out of line or thrown in jail. But actually that seems to have been not, not only is that an exaggeration, but it seems to be the reverse of the truth. It's so an Orientalist myth, isn't it? It's an Orientalist myth that we, yeah. that we have in, in the West about um, Islamic societies. Uh, I'm reading Edward, Edward Said's book, Orientalism, at the moment, and uh, extraordinary work. It's such a fun book to read. Uh, mm -hmm. It investigates many of these um, uh, mistaken conceptions of the Muslim world throughout history and yeah. today, of course, that uh, uh, Western Occidentalists uh, have had. So this is another one, uh, which unfortunately is still quite common today. Yeah, I agree. And this is one of them. So in fact, there, there really aren't any medieval philosophers in the Islamic world who were put in prison or put to death or in general harassed. 
for okay. their philosophical views. There's one philosopher who's a bit later than Ghazali called Sohravardi, who was executed, but that seems to be because he got uh, into a political intrigue with members of Saladin's family. And oh. so Sal Saladin had him put to death. In any case, um, so what Ghazali does there is at the end of the Tahafut, the incoherence of the philosophers, he says that because Ibn Sina w taught certain things that are inconsistent with Islam, yes. he's effectively become an apostate mm -hmm. and the char the penalty for that could be death. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, apostate would usually mean someone who's converted from Islam to another religion, like oh. Christianity, say or like says they no longer accept the prophecy of Muhammad or something like that. But of course, Ibn Sina never said anything like that. He said things like the universe is eternal. Um, mm. And he taught some other things that, it, that Ghazali thought were inconsistent with the Quran or with Islam. For example, um, Ibn Sina didn't accept bodily resurrection. He thought that we live on after death, but only as immaterial souls, as I was mm. talking about before. So I agree. You don't Very great idea, of course. Yeah. Immortality yeah. of the soul is uh, straight from Hellenistic philosophy. Yeah. 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 Right. So, yeah. on this basis, and some other, for other theses that uh, mm -hmm. Messina advanced, Ghazali thought that he had effectively broken with Islam. But of yeah. course, as you said, this is not really an eff efficacious judgment on Ghazali's yeah. part because Messina was already dead. I guess that what Ghazali was thinking is he was sort of laying down a marker. Right. Anyone who comes along and agrees with him and seen about any of this can effectively be killed yes. legally. But in fact, I mean, Ghazali was extremely influential and still is as a theologian. Yes. But even after Ghazali says this, it doesn't seem to have any effect, really. So there are numerous philosophers in the century or two following uh, Al Ghazali who come along and just agree with Ibn Sina about all kinds of things, including the nature of the soul, the eternity of the world, whatever. Um, and even people who don't agree with him, they deal with the question kind of in the same way that Ghazali had in the first part of the topic before he gets to this accusation of apostasy at the end. In other words, they kind of take apart the arguments and they think, okay, well, you know, like, are there good arguments against the eternity of the world for the eternity of the world? What about all this infinity stuff? It gets very complicated, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And you don't get the sense that, um, you certainly don't get the sense that it's uh, like a topic that can no longer be rationally discussed. To the contrary, you have, you know, huge theological philosophical works that have, you know, a hundred page long discussion of the eternity of the world, like weighing up the arguments for and against. So it just is something that gets more and more attention as, as it goes along. But just you, I mean, you mentioned Avarez's uh, response to the incoherence of the philosophers, the incoherence of the incoherence, he somewhat cumbersomely mm -hmm. uh, called it. And then you mentioned there was other philosophers in the centuries after who continued to uh, entertain the ideas of the eternity of the universe. I was going to ask you just how influential was Al Ghazali's uh, critique of Ibn Sina. It seems from what you're saying, it wasn't influential at all. People continued, these philosophers continued to argue um, for the for the eternity of the world, uh, the impression I get, uh, you know, as as a layman was uh, of Al Ghazali's supreme dominance of the field. But you're saying, in fact, uh, that maybe that's mistaken. There was actually quite di a diverse range. Yeah, of I think I think he's influential. As certainly he, his arguments against the eternity of the world are influential. I think the idea that we're going to be able to stop people from saying this kind of thing by getting someone to come along and kill them all mm. if they do that 
that didn't happen for sure. Mm. In part because like who's supposed to do that? So there's no established church in the Islamic world in the way that there is in Christian Europe, or there's yes. no pope, there's no bishops, right? Basically, what you've got is religious scholars and jurists, and then secular, um, you know, princes and warlords. And then just so I'll pause you there at this, at this very time, uh, or perhaps later on, uh, after Al Ghazali, who died in eleven eleven of the Common Era, there was a thing called the Inquisition, the, the Spanish Inquisition, but there was a uh, other Inquisitions. Uh, uh, founded by the the Catholic Church, but there was no apart from one brief moment uh, much earlier to do with the Metazolites or whatever, um, mm -hmm. where they enforce orthodoxy on everyone. Uh, you know the cratedness of the Quran and so on. That seems to be an exceptional episode in Islamic history. That there was no normally there was no Inquisition kind of lurking, keeping everyone in check. In fact, there was quite open discourse in contrast to the situation in Catholic Europe. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, th I think actually the, the failure of what you're calling, what you're referring to there from the ninth century, the Mehna, where they yes. tried to enforce the, the belief in the um, creativeness of the Quran, the fact that that was a complete disaster, maybe warned later um, political leaders from trying the same thing. We shouldn't, by the way, um, sort of paint too rosy a picture here. So for example, if someone comes along and tries to convert Sunnis to Shiites in a area that's controlled by Sh Sh Sunnis, that could definitely get them in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Right. But so what, th this is much more of a limited claim. So the point is that in general, it doesn't seem like political defense of orthodoxy was a constraint on philosophical inquiry in the Islamic world, the way that it actually was in the Latin Christian world, although even there it probably wasn't as efficacious a form of mind control as that they were hoping and this mm. is often thought um but in terms of like the 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 uh influence of ghazali on the the actual debate mm. um he this is certainly a work that continues to be read so for example there's an episode from the early ottoman period where two ottoman scholars were given were kind of like invited to perform in a contest mm. where they judged whether Ghazali's arguments against Ibn Sina were good or not, right? And the and the Sultan gave a prize to the person who gave the best evaluation. Oh, okay. oh, wonderful. Yeah, and um, I think the I think the guy wins a horse on a robe or something like that. So like, well, when was this? What nineteenth century or earlier? This then? must be something like. That's a good question. I think it's something like fifteenth century. Fifteenth. Gosh, yeah, yeah Ottoman well, Empire lasted a very long time. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's fairly early in the Ottoman period, right. um, so uh, so that's that's pretty cool. Um, also, in the in the area where Ibn Rushd is active, which is Muslim Spain, right. uh, you have quite a few discussions of the of the attorney of the world, and not just by Ibn Rushd. And something that I find interesting and intriguing and kind of hard to explain is that there seems to be an emerging consensus in the Islamic Spanish context where people say actually the arguments for and against the eternity of the world are not really um decisive Completely, yeah mm -hmm. so you can argue for, so maimonides in particular the great jewish uh, philosopher uh, mm. who's originally from islamic spain but then moves with his family when he's young and winds up in cairo mm. he um he says well there's, there's arguments for the eternity of the world and against the eternity of the world, but none of them actually prove anything. 
they're just kind of maybe rhetorically convincing or dialectically convincing. So he says that the best strategy is to sh is to prove that God exists on the assumption that the universe is eternal and on the assumption that it's not eternal and you can get the same result either way. Mm -hmm. um, so basically you can use Aristotle's argument for God assuming the world is eternal, or you can say more quickly that if the universe was created and with a first moment in time, then God must have created it. And either way you get God, so it doesn't matter in mm -hmm. a sense. There's a big scholarly controversy about what Maimonides' view actually was about this, but like at least superficially what he's saying is, well, it's hard to tell, but it doesn't matter because you can show that God exists either way. Yeah. Another um, Spanish Muslim philosopher named Ibn Tufail in a really interesting work called Hay Ibn Yaqdan does the same thing. So he says, well, let's prove it with both assumptions. And this kind of um, what you might call a kind of compromise view or ironic view, like, well, let's not try to figure it out. Let's just show that God would have to exist either way. That's something that then got um, kind of passed on to the Latin tradition. And oh. Thomas Aquinas takes that position as well. So he okay. says that the argument, yeah. So he says that the arguments for and against the eternity of the world, the rational arguments are not decisive. We know from the Bible that the universe was created with a first moment in time because the book of Genesis yeah, Ethan, yeah, so says so. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. philosophically, you can't tell. Right, right. So the only way to know would be through revelation. Yes. Drawing to a conclusion then, uh, Peter, what, what are you working on at the moment? Anything um, that uh, we might expect to be published soon? Um, yeah, actually, um, so one thing it has a lot to do with what we were talking about with the um, kind of response to Ghazali, so in the 12th and 13th centuries. Mm -hmm. So I've been running a project uh, that's funded by the German Research Council, the DFG, Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft, um, which is uh, called the Heirs of Avicenna. Heirs like H-E-I-R-S. So sort of looking at the legacy of Vincina in the 12th and 13th centuries. And we're producing a series of source books which translate chunks of arguments on a whole range of different issues, including the eternity of the world, where Messina's views were debated by philosophers kind of starting with Ghazali and then going on for the next couple of hundred years. Um, I mean, actually, they keep debating it for much more than 200 years, but this is the period we're looking at. So we're producing uh, three volumes worth of um, of source books where we are translating lots of material from all the different authors who were alive then and basically trying to point out that there was a kind of parallel development to what we see in with latin scholasticism in europe where there's this massive argument rich very technical very interesting body of philosophical literature which most people don't know about and hopefully we'll make it accessible with the source books so that's something that's coming in, in german though no, 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 that'll be in English. In English? Oh, so the German Research Council is sponsoring you to do something in English. No, that's... Yes, uh, very open-minded. Uh, uh, I didn't expect... We wouldn't do that at Oxford and Cambridge. We wouldn't produce something and then do it in Spanish or something. We would... Uh, <laughs> it, would it would only be in English. Um, I used to write in Latin at Oxford and Cambridge. That, yeah, this is true. This is true. Uh, uh, very true. Yes, perhaps it's a better analogy. Well, Actually, uh, I, think there's a, um, I think there's a rule here at my university that you can you can submit your work in... German, English, or Latin. Really? In Latin? <laughs> yeah. I can hear church bells in the background. Are these university church bells? At the no, that's just my local church. Okay. 
I think it was some medieval thing. Um, well, gosh, in Latin as well, even today. Um, so, well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Peter, for your time, your expertise, your erudition, and your entertaining insights. Uh, it's a fascinating. So, I actually do recommend uh, this, the Incoherence of the Philosophers by Al Ghazali, uh, in this translation, particularly Michael uh, Mar Marmara. I think it's the, uh, uh, the the Bingham Young University Press, mm -hmm. uh, which. Uh, I was going to say bizarrely, but I think they're the Mormon press. Uh, um, so, but nevertheless, yeah. they are um, a mainstream uh, publishers and do a lot of these. And you can read more of uh, Ibn Sina, although he's known in the West as something slightly different. Um, some of these points about the eternity of the world and so on in his metaphysics uh, in that volume, translated by the same guy and published by the same press. So thank you again, Peter, for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for having me on again. Till next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.